War is a Racket, written by two-time Congressional Medal of Honor recipient Major General Smedley T. Butler, USMC retired. Chapter 1. War is a Racket. War is a racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is only one international... It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which profits are reckoned in dollars and losses in lives. Iraq is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small inside group knows what it's about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. In the World War I, a mere handful garnered the profits of the conflict. At least 21,000 new millionaires and billionaires were made in the United States during the World War. That many admitted their huge blood gains in their income tax returns. How many other war millionaires falsified their tax returns, no one knows. How many of these war millionaires shouldered a rifle? How many of them dug a trench? How many of them knew what it meant to go hungry in a rat-infested dugout? How many of them spent sleepless, frightened nights ducking shells and shrapnel and machine gun bullets? How many of them parried a bayonet thrust of an enemy? How many of them were wounded or killed in battle? Out of war, nations acquired additional territory. If they are victorious, they just take it. This newly acquired territory promptly is exploited by the few, the selfsame few who wrung dollars out of the blood in the war. The general public shoulders the bill. And what is this bill? This bill renders a horrible accounting, newly placed gravestones, mangled bodies, shattered minds, broken hearts and homes. Economic instability, depression, and all its attendant mis miseries. Back-breaking taxation for generations and generations. For a great many years as a soldier, I had a suspicion that war was a racket. Not until I retired to civil life did I fully realize it. Now that I see the international war clouds gathering as they are today, I must face it and speak out. Again, they are choosing sides. France and Russia met and agreed to stand side by side. Italy and Austria hurried to make a similar agreement. Poland and Germany cast sheep's eyes at each other, forgetting for the nuns one unique occasion their dispute over the Polish corridor. The assassination of King Alexander of, Ju of Yugoslavia complicated matters. Yugoslavia and Hungary, long bitter enemies, were almost at each other's throats. Italy was ready to jump in, but France was waiting. So was Czechoslovakia. All of them are looking ahead to war. Not the people, not those who fight and pay and die, only those who foment wars and remain safely at home to profit. There are 40 million men under arms in the world today, and our statesmen and diplomats have the temerity to say that war is not in the making. Hell's bells. Are these 40 million men being trained to be dancers? Not in Italy, to be sure. Premier Mussolini knows what they're being trained for. He, at least, is frank enough to speak out. Only the other day, Il Duce, in International Conciliation, the publication of the Carnegie Endowment for an International Peace, said... And above all, fascism, the more it considers and observes the future and the development of humanity, quite apart from political considerations of the moment, believes neither in the possibility nor the utility of perpetual peace. War alone brings up to its highest tension all human energy and puts the stamp of nobility upon the people who have the courage to meet it. 
Undoubtedly, Mussolini means exactly what he says. His well-trained army, his great fleet of planes, and even his navy are ready for war. Anxious for it, apparently. His recent stand inside of Hungary in the latter's dispute with Yugoslavia showed that, in the hurried mobilization of his troops on the Austrian border after the assassination of Dolphus, showed it too. There are others in Europe, too, whose saber-rattling presages war, sooner or later. Air Hitler, with his rearming Germany and his constant demands for more and more arms, is an equal, if not greater, menace to peace. France only recently increased the terms of military service for its youth from a year to 18 months. Yes, all over, nations are camping in their arms. The mad dogs of Europe are on the loose. In the Orient, the maneuvering is more adroit. Back in 1904, when Russia and Japan fought, we kicked out our old friends, the Russians, and backed Japan. Then our very generous international bankers were financing Japan. Now the trend is to poison us against the Japanese. What does the open-door policy to China mean to us? Our trade with China is about $90 million a year, or the Philippine Islands. We have spent about $600 million in the Philippines in 35 years, and we, our bankers and industrialists and speculators, have private investments there of less than $200 million. Then to save that China trade of about $90 million, or 90 billion, or to protect these private investments of less than 200 million in the Philippines, we should be all stirred up to hate Japan and go to war. A war that might well cost us tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives of Americans, and many more hundreds of thousands of physically maimed and mentally unbalanced men. Of course, for this loss, there would be a compensating profit. Fortunes would be made, millions and billions of dollars would be piled up. By a few munitions makers, bankers, shipbuilders, manufacturers, meat packers, speculators, they would fare well. Yes, they're getting ready for another war. Why shouldn't they? It pays high dividends. But what does it profit men who are killed? What does it profit their mothers and sisters, their wives and their sweethearts? What does it profit their children? What does it profit anyone except the very few to whom war means huge profits? Yes, and what does it profit the nation? Take our own case. Until 1898... We didn't own a bit of territory outside the mainland of North America. At that time, our national debt was little more than a million dollars. Then we became internationally minded. We forgot or shunted aside the advice of the father of our country. We forgot George Washington's warning about entangling alliances. We went to war. We acquired outside territory at the end of the World War period as a direct result of our fiddling in international affairs, our national jump debt had jumped to over $25 billion. Our total favorable trade balance during this 25-year period was about $24 billion. Therefore, on a purely bookkeeping basis, we ran a little behind year for year, and then foreign trade might well have been ours without the wars. It would have been far cheaper, not to say safer, for the average American who pays the bills to stay out of foreign entanglements for a few for very few, this racket, like bootlegging and other underworld rackets, brings fancy profits. But the cost of operations is always transferred to the people who do not profit. Chapter 2. Who Makes the Profits? The World War, rather, our brief participation in it, has cost the United States some $52 billion dollars. Figured it out. That means $400 to every American man, woman, and child, and we haven't paid the debt yet. We are paying it, our children will pay it, and our children's children probably will still be paying the cost of that war. The normal profits of a business concern in the United States are 6, 8, 10, and sometimes 12%. 
But wartime profits, ah, that's another matter. 26, 100, 300, and even 1,800%. The sky is the limit. All that traffic will bear. Uncle Sam has the money. Let's get it. Of course, it isn't put that crudely in wartime. It is dressed in speeches about patriotism, love of country, and we must all put our shoulders to the wheel. But the profits jump and leap and skyrocket and are safely pocketed. Let's just take a few examples. Take our friend the DuPonts, the powder people. Didn't one of them testify before a Senate committee recently that their powder won the war or saved the world for democracy or something? How did they do in the war? They were a patriotic corporation. Well, the average earnings of the DuPonts for the period 1910 to 1914 were six million a year. It wasn't much, but DuPonts managed to get along with it. Now let's look at their average yearly profit during the war years, 1914 to 1918. $58 million a year profit we find nearly 10 times that of normal times and the profits of normal times were pretty good an increase of profits of more than 950 percent take one of our little steel companies that patriotically shunted aside the making of rails and girders and bridges to manufacture war materials well their 1910 to 1940 yearly earnings averaged six million then came the war and like loyal citizens bethlehem steel promptly turned to munitions making did their profits jump or did they let Uncle Sam in for a bargain? Well, their 1914 and 1918 average was $49 million a year. Or let's take United States Steel. The normal earnings during the five-year period prior to the war were $105 million a year. Not bad. Then along came the war and up went the profits. Their average yearly profit for the period 1914-1918 was $240 million. Not bad. There you have some of the steel and powder earnings. Let's look at something else. A little copper, perhaps. That always does well in war times. Anaconda, for instance. Average yearly earnings during the pre-war years, 1910 to 14, $10 million. During the war years, 1914 to 1918, profits leap to $34 million per year. <sighs> so that's just... Chapter 1 and a little bit of Chapter 2 of Wars or Racket by General Smedley D. Butler. I could keep going. <laughs> I don't think I can do anymore. Uh, chapter 3 is Who Pays the Bills? Uh, the soldier pays the biggest part of the bill. If you don't believe this, visit the American cemeteries on the battlefields abroad or visit any of the veterans' hospitals in the United States. On a tour of the country in the midst of which I am at the time of this writing, I have visited 18 government hospitals for veterans. In them are a total of about 50,000 destroyed men, men who were the pick of the nation 18 years ago, the very able chief surgeon at the government hospital at Milwaukee, where there are 3,800 of the living dead, told me that mortality among veterans is three times as great as among those who stayed at home. Boys with a normal viewpoint were taken out of the fields and offices and factories and classrooms and put into the ranks. There they were remolded. There they made over. They were made to about face, to regard murder as the order of the day. They were put shoulder to shoulder, and through mass psychology, they were entirely changed. We used them for a couple of years and trained them to think nothing at all of killing or of being killed. Then suddenly we discouraged, we discharged them and told them to make another about face. This time they had to do their own readjustment. Sands mass psychology, sans officers' aid and advice, and sans nationwide propaganda. We didn't need them anymore, so we scattered them about without any three-minute or liberty loan speeches or parades. 
many, too many of these fine young boys were eventually destroyed mentally because they could not make that final about face alone. In the government hospital in Marion, Indiana, 1,800 <clears throat> of these boys are in pens. 500 of them in a barracks with steel bars and wires all around outside the buildings and on the porches. These already have been mentally destroyed. These boys don't even look like human beings. Oh, the looks on their faces. Physically, they're in good shape. Mentally, they are gone. There are thousands and thousands of these cases, and more and more are coming in all the time. The tremendous excitement of the war, the sudden cutting off of that excitement, the young boys couldn't stand it. That's a part of the bill. So much for the dead, they have paid their part of the war profits. So much for the mentally and physically wounded, they are paying now their share of the war profits. But the others paid too. They paid with heartbreaks, and they tore themselves away from their firesides and their families to don the uniform of Uncle Sam, on which a profit has been made. They made another part in the training camps where they were re regimented and drilled while others took their jobs and their places in the lives of their communities. They paid for it in the trenches where they were shot and they were where they shot and were shot, where they were hungry for days at a time, where they slept in the mud and the cold and in the rain, with the moans and the shrieks of the dying for a horrible lullaby. But don't forget, the soldier paid part of the dollars and cents bill too. Up to and including the Spanish-American War, we had a prize system, and soldiers and sailors fought for money. During the Civil War, they were paid bonuses, in many instances, before they were even went into service. The government or states paid as high as $1,200 for an enlistment in the Spanish-American War. They gave prize money. When we captured any vessels, the soldiers all got their share. At least, they were supposed to. When it was found that we could reduce the cost of wars by taking all the prize money and keeping it but constricting, drafting the soldier anyway... Then soldiers couldn't bargain for their labor. Labor, Everyone else could bargain, but the soldier couldn't. Napoleon once said, All men are enamored of decorations. They positively hunger for them. So by developing the Napoleonic system, the middle business, the government learned it could get soldiers for less money because the boys liked to be decorated. Until the Civil War, there were no medals. Then the Congressional Medal of Honor was handed out. It made enlistments easier. After the Civil War, no new medals were issued until the Spanish-American War. In the World War, we used propaganda to make the boys accept conscription. They were made to feel ashamed that they didn't join the army. So vicious was this war pro propaganda that even God was brought into it. With few exceptions, our clergymen joined in the clamor to kill, kill, kill. To kill the Germans, God is on our side. It is his will that the Germans be killed. And in Germany, the good pastors called upon the Germans to kill the Allies, to please the same God that was part of the general propaganda built up to make people war-conscious and murder-conscious. Beautiful ideals were painted for our boys who were sent out to die. This was a war to end all wars. This was a war to make the world safe for democracy. No one mentioned to them as they marched away that their going and their dying would mean huge war profits. No one told these American soldiers that they might be shot down by bullets made by their own brothers here. No one told them that the ships on them that were going to cross the torpedo to cross might be torpedoed by submarines built with the United States patents. They were just told it was going to be a glorious adventure. Oh, so that's chapter three. I won't read everything. Chapter four, how to smash the racket. The only way to smash this racket is to conscript capital and industry and labor before the nation's manhood can be conscripted. One month before the government can conscript the young men of the nation, it must conscript capital and industry and labor. Let the officers and the directors and the high-powered executives of our armament factories and our munitions makers and our shipbuilders and our airplane builders and the manufacturers of all the things that profit war in all times 
as well as the bankers and the speculators be constricted to get $30 a month the same wage as the lads in the trenches get. Let the workers in these plants get the same wages. All the workers, all presidents, all executives, all directors, all managers, all bankers, yes, and all generals and all admirals and officers and politicians and government office holders. Everyone in the nation be restricted to a total monthly income not to exceed that paid to the soldier in the trenches. Let all these kings and tycoons and masters of business and all those workers in industry and all our senators and governors and mayors pay half of their monthly $30 wage to their families and pay war risk insurance and buy liberty bonds. Why shouldn't they? They aren't running any risk of being killed or of having their bodies mangled or their minds shattered. They aren't sleeping in muddy trenches. They aren't hungry. The soldiers are. Give capital and industry and labor 30 days to think it over and you will find by that time there will be no war. That will smash the war record. Racket, that, and nothing else. Maybe I'm a little too optimistic. Capital still has some say. So capital won't permit the taking of the profit out of war until the people, those who do the suffering and still pay the price, make up their minds and those that those they elect to office shall do their bidding and not that of the profiteers. Uh, so it was written in 1935. General Smedley Butler, two-time Medal of Honor recipient and also awarded the Brevet Medal from the Marine Corps and was the most highly decorated um, Marine in U.S. history up to that point. I haven't seen what's up now, but up to 1935 he was. <sighs> And so he says, to hell with war. And I agree. And I don't know what to do. I don't know what you can do. I don't know what I can do. I got no ideas. I'm open for ideas. I'm listening. I'm hopeful. <laughs> I'm, uh, <sighs> I believe in peace. And I'm hopeful for it. I don't know. You gotta do a lot of work to get it. And that's why I almost feel like I tell people that, you know, everybody just retire, go find a beach somewhere, get away from everybody. Um, I'm just hopeful. I mean, I have hope. <laughs> I don't know what I'm hopeful for. I don't know what to do for anybody but myself. And the only thing that I can do for myself is to avoid people, <laughs> avoid war, uh, and be as happy as I can and enjoy life because what else can we do? We're all going to die someday. Uh, rather than live in fear and misery... I choose hope and peace for me, so that's what I'll keep doing. Check out this book. Um, hit me up. Let's talk. Yep. So thank you for listening. Uh, all rights, not mine, was not my book, was not my words. Written in 1935.
War is a racket. Major General Smedley D. Butler. Check it out. In San Bernardino, California. This copy comes from 2013. Uh, do something. <laughs> Enjoy your life. Don't go to war. As I've said before, it's highly overrated. Thank you.